Hi, this is Dr. Tim Sagers with Captive Health, and welcome to Captive Health Insights. Today, we have a great guest to share with you. Dr. Sajida Ahad is a bariatric surgeon with Percy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She's the director of the Metabolic and Bariatric Health Program at Mercy in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She's board certified in general surgery, bariatric surgery, and metabolic and obesity medicine. She's residency trained at Mayo Clinic and did her fellowship training at the University of Washington. We had a great conversation today. We talked about obesity, the definition of obesity, some of the pitfalls we all experience when we're trying to manage our weight. We talked about various treatment options, including those new, fancy, and popular drugs that are on the market for weight loss. And we ended our conversation talking about bariatric surgery, its risks, its benefits, and the long-term outcomes after those types of treatments. It was a great conversation. I think you'll learn a lot. And with that, let's talk better health with Dr. Ahad. Dr. Hod, thanks for being part of Captive Health Health Insights. Appreciate you being here. Really important topic. As a primary care doctor, I probably spend half my day dealing with obesity and problems associated with obesity, if not more than that. So I'm really happy to have an expert like you here. The work we do with employers and with their employees, uh, much of our programming is aimed at healthy lifestyles, health and wellness, and managing chronic disease, which is really closely tied to obesity, as you're well aware. And I think as we talk about obesity today, maybe the best way for us to start is talk about some definitions. Um, people think about obesity in different ways, and I would love to hear your expert opinion on how we should talk about the word obesity, the meaning of that word, and what a true scientific definition of obesity is, if you would. Thank you, Dr. Sagers, for the opportunity to be here today. Um, this is a very exciting topic and uh, something very close to my heart. Um, obesity, as we know, we have learned, we have heard that it is uh, epidemic in United States. But what truly is obesity? In simple layman terms, it's basically increased fat in relation to the muscle mass. How we truly measure it varies uh, from one uh, study to the next. The easiest way, not necessarily the most accurate way to do so is by body mass index or BMI. And uh, BMI basically takes into account a person's height and weight and uh, calculates a ratio or a number. And then based on that number, we decide whether somebody is uh, suffering from obesity or not. And a, a, a general accepted, I think, parameter for obesity in America is a BMI greater than 30. Is that correct? That That's is absolutely kind of how we correct. scientifically define it. Yes. So um, a normal BMI is anywhere between 18 to 25. Um, anything over 25 but less than 30 is overweight, and over 30 is considered uh, obese. Okay. And would I be wrong in saying I think the last statistics I saw, the Centers for Disease Control puts the prevalence of the obesity in the United States at 42%, something Correct. like that? Yes. Some crazy high number. And I think in Iowa it's like 37% or something. Would that be accurate? And and very, very accurate numbers. And these numbers are only increasing every year. So if you take the number of um, people who are overweight and obese, that's 70% of our population right now, and um, 93 million people in United States are suffering from obesity. Wow, that's almost a, that's more than a pandemic, right? I mean, that's more than a pandemic. Yeah, if there was any other disease with that kind of number, we would, you know, be going crazy about it. And, um, you know, I think obesity is a really, uh, it's a complex problem. And I think, 
I think one of the reasons that we dance around obesity is I don't think a lot of people accept the fact that it's actually a disease. It's a chronic disease. It's not just a thing or a behavior or somebody making choices. I think we've learned a lot about what obesity really is from a scientific standpoint. Um, and I do hear every day in my clinic when I'm practicing medicine, um, the excuses for obesity and the explanations for obesity pe people have. Can you share in your work with obese people, and I know that your program, and we'll talk more about that after a while, but um, it's a really complex program because you get into the behaviors associated with obesity and sometimes the psychiatric relationship with obesity and those kinds of things. But can you talk a little bit about what you would consider the biggest misconception your patients have about obesity and their weight? Um, I think, so it's not just patients, it's society in general. And doctors. And yes, doctors. Yes. Uh, the biggest uh, roadblock and misconception that we encounter is obesity is a self-inflicted problem. People don't look at it as a disease. And it's a very easy disease to diagnose because we wear it. We Everybody can look at you and guess that you're obese or not. That's not the case for diabetes or high blood pressure. You know, So we also feel as a society that it is our place to de then judge the person, that they brought this disease upon themselves by being lazy, by not eating the right things, by making poor food choices. And uh, number one, we know that obesity is a disease. Who doesn't want to be healthy? Um, there are so many factors that determine what the person's obesity level is. There's genetics involved. There's hormonal changes involved. There are medications involved. And while diet and activity does play a role, it is not the only determinant factor on how a person ends up being obese or not obese. Um, so, yeah, th th that is the bigger, biggest misconception in terms of um, society that, uh, you know, not treating obesity as a disease and uh, blaming patient for their disease. Um, the second misconception is how we treat obesity. And um, the, p there are different ways. There are medications, there are lifestyle changes, uh, and then there is surgery. Um, lifestyle changes do work. But the biggest problem with that is people, when they do lose weight, it tends to come back. Again, it's a chronic disease for which we have no cure, only treatment. And the treatment has to be multimodal. So there has to be lifestyle changes, there has to be medications, and then there is the role of bariatric surgery, which is pretty substantial as well. Yeah, that's a really great way to think about it. And I think I think a lot of doctors, you, you mentioned earlier, society in general, but I think a lot of doctors... Um, dance around obesity. Um, we know from our work in our employed populations that we serve that very often people have multiple diagnoses that are associated with diabetes or with obesity, but we do not see the word obesity in their list of diagnoses. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's failures on the part of the medical system too. I think doctors don't engage conversations about obesity. Um, one, I, I mean, it's embarrassing to say, but I think a lot of doctors don't truly understand um, the true etiology of obesity, and certainly they don't want to spend a half an hour talking about it during a fast clinic visit. Um, so I think it's 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 multifactorial in its etiology, and it's all the, the problem, I think, with why it's grown so much or why the prevalence has uh, exponentially grown is the way the medical, the medical system reacts as well. So, you, go ahead. I think, Dr. Sagers, you bring a very important point that we have all these diseases listed on the patient's problem list.
but we don't address the obesity. It's like we are uh, medically blind to it. But an important statistic is that one in four patients over a BMI of 40 will have on an average six disease processes caused or exacerbated by obesity. Yet we tend to ignore the root cause of, of all problems. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, I, I believe that. I see that every day. Um, there's no doubt. And I've practiced uh, primary care for 20 years. Obese people are sicker. Uh, they have more problems. They have more pharmacy. They use more medications. Um, and we'll talk about the cost of obesity from a pure financial sense, uh, I imagine, as we move through our conversation. But I'd like to go back to something you said earlier. And this idea about people losing weight um, and the struggle with that. Uh, one of the most common things I hear in my practice is, um, well, there's two things I hear all the time. One is everyone in my family is big, so I know I'm going to be big. Um, and number two is I eat well, I work out, I hardly eat anything, and I'm still gaining weight. Um, and that's from people of all ages, men mm -hmm. and women. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about the genetics? Uh, we know it's a multifactorial problem or the etiology is complex, but can you talk a little bit about the genetics of obesity and then um, a little bit about why people fail with traditional techniques. Yeah, so I'm gonna answer your questions a little bit in reverse. Let's talk about I eat less, why am I obese? Mm. So everybody has different metabolism. You know, um, if you compare a male patient to a female patient and you give them exact same diet, exact same calories, and they follow it to the T, you will notice that the male patient will end up losing more weight than the female patient. That's just inherent uh, differences in our metabolism, um, activity level, muscle mass, and whatnot. But one of the biggest problem we have is our visual scale for our portion sizes have changed. So yes, a person, including myself, may think that I'm not eating a lot, but our portion sizes just over the last 20 years have increased by 20 to 25%. I'll give you an example. Our Mexican uh, food has increased by 27% in terms of portion sizes. Our fast food or burgers have increased by 25%. Our soda with unlimited refills by 50%. We're talking about sizes here. With increased size comes increased calories. But when you see everybody around you eating bigger portions, you don't have the idea what a regular portion size is. So the first thing I tell my patients is invest in a kitchen scale, weigh all your food, know what your portions are. And I will tell you 99% of the time, they tell me it's an eye-opening exercise in self-reflection and knowing um, uh, what they're putting in their mouth. The second thing is education. Not all calories are made equal. Um, you can consume a thousand calories in form of uh, pure sugar and pure fat or pure protein, and they're all metabolized differently. Um, having said that, you know, there so there's a different perception of um, uh, patients have uh, altered perception of how much exertion is required in exercise as well to burn um, calories. So in order to burn one hamburger, you would probably have to run for an hour. Um, to do so. So I tell patients it's easier not to eat the hamburger than trying to run for an hour, especially with bad knees or bad hips or back pain that, that uh, you may have. Portion control is of paramount importance in that as well. Genetics does play a role in obesity. 
and predisposition to obesity. We know that for a fact. But also some of it is um, the eating behaviors, um, the activity behaviors that tend to run in family. Uh, children remodel what they see their parents sure. do. Um, our children average screen time is two hours a day for most children across America. That also means more sedentary lifestyle. So that perpetuates obesity as well. We have about 9 million children who are obese and 70% of that are of them are estimated to remain obese into adulthood. So those numbers are going to keep on increasing if we don't intervene and intervene uh, aggressively. Those are really good points. I <clears throat> excuse me. I know that we know well from good research that Kids that grow up with smokers are more likely to smoke. Mm -hmm. Kids that grow up with drinkers are more likely to drink, to abuse. Um, and I suppose it makes sense that if you watch poor eating behavior um, and a sedentary lifestyle, you're going to model that as well. That's a really good point. I don't. I think sometimes we don't own that behavior as parents. And and I do see in my practice every day, kids are heavier and heavier. Um, I I want to go back a little bit to something you said about calories and portions. Mm -hmm. um, in my primary care clinic, often patients come in, they tell me, I'm hardly eating anything. I'm not losing weight, as I mentioned earlier. One of the first things I do is I say, look, I'm not going to talk to you about obesity today or about weight loss. What I want you to do for two or three weeks is I want you to write down everything that touches your lips. Mm -hmm. If you drink from the drinking fountain, write it down. If you eat a cracker, write it down. And I have found what you, you mentioned earlier, it's, it's eye-opening to people. When I ask them, how many calories do you think you eat a day? And they say, oh, I don't know, maybe 1,000 or something. I'm shaking my head and they come back and they're eating 4,000 calories a day. And they just they just had no idea. Absolutely. Um, and so it's a, it, it is eye-opening to really, you have to help them frame the problem to yeah. some extent. One of the uh, most interesting aspects that I see is young mothers who are trying to clean the plates for their kids. <laughs> I mean, it's a bite here and there, but they add it up and it's six, 700 calories that didn't give them any satiety. But they didn't want to throw the food. They didn't want to waste the food. Right. And they put it in their mouth, and that added to the extra weight, to the extra calories, um, not in one day, but over time. Yeah, I, I see that a lot. I'll, I'll have a, a child in the clinic who's obese. And one of the parents will say, well, all he eats are these chips or these things. And I will literally make a point of sliding my chair over in front of this young child and saying, do you walk to Hy-Vee and buy groceries? In a way, trying to shame the parents to think about, look, you're bringing that stuff into the house. <laughs> They're going to eat if you bring it in. Yeah. I mean, you bring a bag of cookies to my house, I'll eat them. Um, so I really try hard to reinforce those behaviors as well. And I think that uh, fundamentally, the core management of obesity for any patient is really understanding your own behaviors uh, and how we, we kind of handicap ourselves that way in our eating and our behaviors. Um, I think those are really important things to emphasize. Um you know, I, I think you probably hear this as well. Um, right now, there's this big explosion in these new medicines that are out for obesity. Um, I, I can't, I don't go through my clinic for more than an hour before I get a question about these new medications. So yeah. the Ozempic, the Wagavi, all this stuff that's yeah. out there, these diabetic medicines that are now, uh, some are approved for, for obesity and obesity with, with comorbid disease. I get questions all day long about these medications. Uh, and quite frankly, uh, there's some decent research around some of these. Um, they're not without side effects. They're not a panacea. I've actually had patients who gain weight using these medicines. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about your experience with these medicines, if you use them, or what your thought as a, 
as an obesity and metabolic expert, what your thoughts are. So, um, you know, the first thing I want to say is we all know obesity is a disease, right? And we have to use different modalities. It's a multifaceted disease. Not one thing causes it. Not one treatment will cure it. So there are medications. Um, they go by Ozempic, Vigovi, Monjaro, the GLP, um, Agnes, and they work really well in terms of weight loss. There are certain limitations to those medications and certain side effects. Uh, there are also people who can't take it. So, for example, people with medullary thyroid cancer or um, certain type of pancreatic cancers because it can cause growth of this or potentially. Um, but studies have shown that they do cause very good weight loss, almost as good as bariatric surgery. Um, I do use those medications, and I will tell you how I use them and why I use them. But my disclaimer to the patients is that we are real-life guinea pigs in this experiment. Yeah. We don't know what these medications would do 10, 20 years. But our pressing problem, which is obesity, is now causing heart disease, is causing high blood pressure, is causing diabetes, and that's what it's treating. So as, a, as best as we know today, these are good choices that do help you. They're not short-term choices, just like you wouldn't treat blood pressure for two years and once it's stabilized, you take the patient off medication. These are probably going to be lifelong. Maybe the dose would need to be adjusted. Why do I use them when I'm actually a bariatric surgeon? So we look at obesity treatment kind of like cancer treatment. If somebody comes in with a diagnosis of cancer, um, depending on the stage of cancer, that patient may receive chemo or radiotherapy before surgery. Then they get surgery, and then after that, some more um, chemotherapy or radiotherapy or whatnot. Obesity is really the same way. There has to be a new adjuvant therapy. So you can, somebody has a BMI of 80 and extremely high risk for surgery. Well, you drop their BMI using medications to a level where surgery is an acceptable risk. Then you do surgery. Let the patient lose weight. If they stall, you bring the medications back on. Um, so it's, it's a multimodal approach to treatment of obesity, and we have been successfully using it for over two years now with amazing results. That's a great point. I love your comparison to cancer in that chemotherapy, in this case, the weight loss medications um, before surgery or other intervention, then follow-up therapy to maintain control. I, that's a really good analysis or comparison. I I like to emphasize the patients, and I've been using those these medicines more and more, especially in um, obese patients who I consider higher risk. So they have other diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, cholesterol, or maybe they have heart disease. These medicines also have been shown to be beneficial in people with heart disease or kidney disease yes. for long-term safety yeah. or long-term uh, prevention of further renal loss, that kind of thing. I try really hard to emphasize that this is one piece. Uh, you still have to eat well. Absolutely. I still want you exercising. Yep. Um, you can eat your way around these medicines, just like a diabetic can eat their way around their insulin. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a really important thing. I think people are, you know, it's it's this Amazon approach to healthcare. I want mm -hmm. it now, and I want it to work, and I want it delivered to my house tomorrow. And and um, weight loss is a journey. Absolutely. Um, and I think that that's a that's a really important point to make. Do you find that um, for the most part? your patients tolerate these medicines? For the most part. Yeah. I mean, I have if I have a patient who is struggling, uh, we back down on the dose. We 
change and we see why the patient is struggling. But um, yeah, we, we have had really good success with Wigovi and now um, ZepBound, which was just recently approved by FDA. We've been using it off-label as Monjaro for patients yeah. who are diabetic and need to lose weight. And we've, we've had great success. We're really happy with the results. Yeah, the results are impressive. And I think the literature suggests between the two different types of agents, between an average of 15 pounds and 33 pounds of weight loss, something like that on average. It, it's um, So some studies have reported up to 15% wow. of body weight loss. And you know some of these patients um, at the highest dose can lose 50 to 60 pounds. Wow. So yeah, and, and we have definitely seen more than that. And there has been, I, want, I don't want to spend all of our time on these medicines because I do want to get into bariatric surgery and other modalities. There has been some reports recently of the weight loss with these medicines is not just fat loss or adipose loss, it's muscle loss. That's very good um, point, yes. And um, that's absolutely true. But that's also true for bariatric surgery. So almost 20% of the weight that you're going to lose uh, with any of these modalities, be it medications, be it uh, bariatric surgery, it's going to be your skeletal muscle mass, which is what we need, which is what we want to keep. And we don't want to lose that. So how do we mitigate that is by doing resistance training. And that's where the whole lifestyle modification comes in, that it's not just a quick shot that's going to fix everything. We have to modify our activity. We have to change the way we eat and what we eat in order to be successful long term. Yeah, that's a great point to make. It, again, it's one, one tool exactly. in the toolbox. Um, I'd like to transition and talk a little bit about bariatric surgery. Um, in my practice, if there's a question I get almost as often as, hey, can I have one of these new medicines? It's, I think I need bariatric surgery. My friend got it, my mom got it, my brother got it, whatever, and they're doing really well. I want to have bariatric surgery. And interestingly, very often it's people that probably don't need bariatric surgery. <laughs> some do, some don't. And I will, just by way of background, um, you know, I've been doing primary care medicine 20 years. And when I first got into medicine, um, I was really leery about bariatric surgery. Mm -hmm. um, there weren't a lot of people around doing it. Yeah. There were complications. I saw some of those complications firsthand. Um, and it, when I saw somebody preoperatively to medically clear them for that kind of a surgery, uh, I took it very seriously. And there were times where I wouldn't clear patients because out there too high risk. Um, I'm happy to report uh, my attitude, my approach to bariatric surgery has done a complete 360. Um, I'm a big fan of bariatric surgery. I've seen what it can do. It's become exceedingly safe. Um, and so I'd like to talk a little bit about what it is because I think I think people have an idea of what they think bariatric surgery is or weight loss surgery is. Um, but if you can talk a little bit about what you do every day in the operating room, the types of procedures, and I think what people are really interested here is the safety mm -hmm. associated with those procedures and then what outcomes you see. How do people do six months, 12 months later after surgery? So um, you asked me a lot of questions. It's in a, lot, one it's question. a loaded yeah, statement. Yeah, it's a loaded Sorry. statement. Um, uh, bariatric surgery basically is surgically altering the anatomy of the alimentary canal, your, your stomach organs, if you will, uh, your small intestine in your stomach, per se, to restrict the amount of calories that you eat and or res restrict the absorption from that. And there are different types of procedures to do that. 
Fun fact, the first ever um, gastric bypass was actually done here in Iowa in 1966. I did not know that. So it was done by Dr. Mason at the University of Iowa. So so we, we have always been at the forefront of fighting obesity. Um, we also have, um, you're absolutely right when you say that bariatric surgery had these complications associated with it. But uh, right now, under the guidance of American College of Surgeons and American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery, we do have a very robust body that confers on a program. Uh, Stringent criteria are actually utilized to confer on a program, whether they are a center of excellence, whether they have all that needs, um, all that they need to have to have a safe bariatric program. Uh, because of all these measures, because of education, because of people who are specifically trained in bariatric surgery, over the last few years, bariatric surgery has become exceedingly safe with a mortality rate of less than 1%, safer than a hip replacement, safer than gallbladder surgery. Um, some pe- people do it as outpatient surgery. Others have one-night stay um, most patients do very, very well. They're very happy with the weight loss. There are uh, weight loss-related benefits and non-weight loss-related benefits as well. So sometimes the patient may not, may not lose all the weight that they want to lose, but there's some profound metabolic effects on their blood sugars, on their cholesterol, on their high blood pressure, that you know that are they they're still able to come off medications, feel good, decrease the overall inflammatory state that they normally um, struggle with. Um, you know, we talked about that there are 93 million people who are obese in America. We did just a little over 250,000 bariatric surgeries in United States in you know last two years or so. Or that's per year data. That just basically means that access to surgery is highly limited. But we knew as far back as in 1991 when NIH put out a statement that only bariatric surgery has been shown long-term in most patients to cure, to treat obesity, not cure it, but to treat obesity. Yeah, it's amazing. And I, one of my funnest things, something I enjoy very much in my clinic is when somebody comes in post-bariatric surgery, they're in their weight loss journey, they've already lost 40 pounds, whatever it is, and I'm peeling away medication. Yeah. You know, this is somebody that maybe was on six or eight medicines prior to their bariatric surgery. Um, I'm able to take away their cholesterol medicine, their blood pressure medicine, you name it. it yeah. It's really fun. It's one of the few few cases or situations where I'm able to do that. Yeah. Um, I feel like I'm just constantly treating disease associated with obesity. But when I get to, you know, look at somebody shrink in size, they feel better, they look better. They're they're really different people. It's quite remarkable, actually. It's really fun to watch. It, it absolutely um, is, and it's so gratifying. Um, you know, we'll see patients along the same lines that come to us with 400 units of insulin a day, yeah. and they leave the hospital on nothing and normal blood sugars. Yeah, it's remarkable. And, yeah. It's really fun to watch. And I, if you could just for a moment, could you talk a little bit about so you're a surgeon, you do a lot of bariatric surgery. Can you talk a little bit about, I think people need to understand that uh, when you see a bariatric surgeon or you start, start considering that as a possible uh, treatment option, there's more to it than just a surgery. Yeah. It's a pretty involved process. It really is. So, you know, one of the things we uh, touched upon uh, first was 
the misconception about obesity are portion sizes. So we are a very um, we're very heavy on educating our patients. So there's very intense dietary intervention, behavioral modification. There's also psychological evaluation that is required to undergo. And the reason behind the psychological evaluation is not to preclude anybody from surgery. It's basically to identify barriers and roadblocks that could prevent a patient from becoming more successful after surgery. So that it, it is a huge help to us to then point the patient in the right direction. Um, there's monthly visits that, that we do with those patients. We we check all vitamins, all minerals before going into surgery to make sure they don't go into surgery deficient in any form. Yeah, I know it's a very involved process, and that's I think that's what I've grown to appreciate the most. Um, and I'll be frank with you, when uh, some of your patients come back and I see them, uh, we do share some patients. Um, I learn from them. I learn awesome. things about the program I don't know, and so it's really cool. I. You know, obesity is a really complex disease. Um, it's a very dangerous disease. Um, there's estimates out there that two-thirds of our healthcare spending is related to chronic disease, most often tied to obesity-related um, risk. Um, we spend something like $260 billion a year on obesity in this country. We have employers that listen to our podcast. Mm -hmm. um, just the indirect cost to employers for productivity and absenteeism is probably 80 to $100 billion a year. So it's a very, very costly disease. And I don't think sometimes that patients realize they're paying for that yeah. uh, one way or the other. And so this, these tools we're talking about, the behavior modification understanding your your behavior and, and how you eat and drink, um, maybe medication and bariatric surgery. There's a lot of stuff in our toolbox here. We know that bariatric surgery is a very safe and effective way to help manage obesity. I think some patients and certainly employers who are listening to our podcast will wonder about, well, that's an expensive surgery. Um, but can you talk about the return on investment with a bariatric surgery? Yeah, that's a great question. So yes, there is cost associated with um, bariatric surgery, but studies have shown that in most instances, the cost is, the break-even point comes within a year to two years. Um, so whatever you invest after that, it's a saving. Um, people are off their medications, they are uh, less days lost, less absenteeism, they're more productive at work. Um, employees are generally happier. We know that weight loss leads to improvement in mood, better self-esteem, better self-image, all of these. So it, it's a win-win situation for everybody. I'd like to wrap up with just asking you, um, I'm an obese patient and I walk into your clinic tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I've read about you, I've learned about you from this podcast and I want to talk about this. And I have a BMI of 40 mm -hmm. and I have high blood pressure. Um, three pearls, three nuggets you tell me you want me to leave your office with that day. Get bariatric surgery. <laughs> um, I will tell Shameless you. Shameless plug. No, it's not a plug. <laughs> so your BMI is 40. Um, yeah, you know, we have studies that show the earlier you get it, the better your results are going to be. Yeah. Um, and there's less damage to end organs and more easily reversible. So don't wait until the BMI is 60 or 70. Um, be involved in the process. We want the patient to be an active participant, and that will ensure durability of the results and more satisfaction for the patient as well. Um, and then it's a journey. It's a lifestyle change. It's not a quick fix. Um, and that mindset 
when that changes and that aha moment happens, it does happen for overwhelming majority of patients. They are so much more actively involved in their own health. It's, it's just amazing and very gratifying to watch. Great points. Dr. Hutt, thanks for being part of Health Insights. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. A lot of fun. You're welcome.